I'm Avery Arden of the Rock Candy Podcast Network, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Hey y'all, I'm back as promised with more passages from Leslie Feinberg that I believe are super pertinent for current political conversations around gender and sexuality and all that jazz. But first, I want to announce once again that I am seeking submissions for a special episode of this podcast, centering around responses to current events. From war and climate change to increased anti-trans and anti-abortion sentiments, what are you feeling? What actions are you taking? What books or movies or communities or higher powers are you turning to for encouragement? Send your submissions to queerlychristian36 at gmail.com by August 1st. They can be written out or recorded, just a few sentences or seconds long, or up to eight pages or ten minutes long. For me, Leslie Feinberg is one of those people to whom I turn in times like these, especially her 1996 book, Transgender Warriors. When I struggle to articulate exactly why trans women should be welcome in all women's spaces, or how all forms of injustice are intertwined, I find that Feinberg's already put my own feelings into clear, galvanizing words. Now, of course, there are parts of those words that might be updated to fit current events even more closely, and also to fit current terminology preferred by the trans community, But in the excerpts I'll share with you shortly, I do not censor Feinberg's language. I keep it how Z wrote it, inviting you to consider how much has changed since 1996 and how much has stayed the same. One thing that unfortunately remains the same over 20 years later is the presence of people who have twisted transness into monstrosity in their minds who view trans women as predators and trans men as poor, confused women. In these viewpoints, people who consider themselves feminists join forces with the most right-wing of conservatives. These trans-exclusionary, radical feminists will do just about anything to sabotage the trans movement, even if they harm a lot of women they claim to care about, cis women, in the process. As I take you through the following passages from chapter 14 of Transgender Warriors, I'll pause periodically to reference current events to which they might apply. Feinberg may have been responding to anti-trans arguments from the 90s, but TERFs employ much of the same tired rhetoric today, forcing us to refute the same exact hate again and again and again. We can look to our trans ancestors, or transcestors, for their insights as we face the new iterations of the same old bigotry. Take, for instance, the first passage I'll read for you in a moment, where Feinberg explains how attempting to define and police womanhood harms all women, trans and cis, intersex and parasex. Because a lot of people who want to be supportive of the trans community including many of us who are trans, find it difficult to articulate what's wrong with certain anti-trans rhetoric, 
I'm grateful to Leslie Feinberg for having put it all into words that still resonate today. As someone who identified both as trans or transmasculine and as a woman and a butch lesbian, Leslie Feinberg had a unique vantage point for recognizing exactly how intertwined trans rights and women's rights are. This informs your arguments against those who would pit the trans and women's movements against each other. Let's get reading. The development of the trans movement has raised a vital question that's being discussed in women's communities all over the country. The discussion revolves around one pivotal question. How is woman to be defined? The answer we give may determine the course of women's liberation for decades to come. The question can't be considered without understanding that women face such constant dangers and harassment day in and day out that the attempt to define woman is generated by the need for safe space and clear-cut allies. That's a completely valid need, but how can we create safe space for women? I think that if we define woman as a fixed entity, we will draw borders that would need to be policed. No matter what definition is used, many women who should be inside will be excluded. Let's look first at the question of how woman can or cannot be defined. Some women hold an essential or biological definition that one is born woman. Others, who define themselves as social constructionists, argue that women share a common experience. I don't think we can build women's communities or a liberation movement based on either definition. A biological definition of woman is a dangerous direction for the women's movement to take. To accept that biological boundary would mark a definite break with the key principle of the second wave of women's liberation in the United States, that biology is not destiny. Simone de Beauvoir wrote, One is not born, but one becomes a woman. The heart of that wisdom is that one should not be limited in life or oppressed because of birth biology. This is a truth that has meaning to all trans people and all women. Of course, as a result of the oppression women face growing up in such a violently anti-woman environment, some women draw a line between women as allies and men as enemies. While it's understandable that an individual might do so out of fear, this approach fails as theory. It lumps John Brown and John D. Rockefeller together as enemies, and Sojourner Truth and Margaret Thatcher together as allies. This view of who to trust and who to dread will not keep women safe or keep the movement on course. One of the gifts of the women's liberation movement in the 70s was the understanding that our oppression as women is institutionalized or built into the economic system. But this same system also tyrannizes entire nationalities, subjugates people because of whom they love, denies people their abilities, works people near to death, and leaves many homeless and hungry. And last but not least, this system grinds up those who don't fit a narrow definition of woman and man. A view that the primary division of society is between men and women leads some women to fear that transsexual women are men in sheep's clothing coming across their border, or that female-to-male transsexuals are going over to the enemy. Where is the border for intersexual people? Right down the middle of their bodies? 
biological determinism isn't just a recognition that some people have vaginas and others have penises. It is a theoretical weapon used in a pseudoscientific way to rationalize racism and sexism, the partitioning of the sexes, and behavior modification to make gender expression fit bodies. If we reject a fixed biological boundary to define women as a group, what about the view that women share a common oppression? I believe this is also a perilous approach that can particularly lead to glossing over racism and class oppression. Since the rise of feminism, the definition of woman has been increasingly linked to a number of shared bodily experiences, like rape, incest, forced pregnancy, and battering. The underlying assumption is often that this physical oppression, experienced as a result of having a biologically female body, is the defining element of womanhood. But women are not the only ones who experience the horrors of rape, incest, sexual humiliation, and brutality. Do all women share the same experiences in a society? What about the male-to-female transsexual women who have helped build the women's movement over the years? They experience women's oppression on a daily, even hourly basis. So if facing women's oppression defines being a woman, how long do you have to live it before you're in? Do white women share the exact same experience as women of color? Do poor women and rich women share an identical experience? What about the experiences of disabled women, single mothers, lesbians, deaf women? Women endure many different hardships and experiences. The sum total of our experiences and our resulting strengthened insights are just a small part of how many ways there are to be woman in this society. And remember the adage that you can't tell a book by its cover? Well, you can't read a person's overall consciousness by their gender expression. In addition, gender doesn't just come in two brands like perfume and cologne. Take masculinity, for example, particularly since there's an underlying assumption that the brutal and insensitive behavior of some men is linked to masculinity. Yet not all men dress, move, or behave in the same way. The masculinity of oppressed African-American men is not the masculinity of the Ku Klux Klan members. Gender is expressed differently in diverse nationalities, cultures, regions, and classes. And not all men in any given group express their masculinity in the same way. At a recent speaking event, I couldn't help but notice a man in the audience who was very masculine, but there was something in his gender expression that held my attention. At a later reception, he told me that he learned his masculinity from women. Butches had mentored him as a young gay male. He learned one variation of an oppressed masculinity. And what about males who are considered effeminate? Feminists have justifiably pointed out that that label is inherently anti-woman, but it is also anti-trans, genderphobic, and anti-feminine. The oppression of feminine men is an important one to me, since I consider drag queens to be my sisters. I've heard women criticize drag queens for mocking women's oppression by imitating femininity to an extreme, just as I've been told that I am imitating men. Feminists are justifiably angry at women's oppression, so am I. I believe, however, that those who denounce drag queens aim their oppression at the wrong people. This misunderstanding doesn't take gender oppression into account. There is a difference between the drag population and masculine men doing cruel female impersonations. 
The Bohemian Grove, for example, is an elite United States club for wealthy, powerful men that features comedy cross-dressing performances. But that's not drag performance. Many times the burlesque comedy of the cross-dressed masculine men is as anti-drag as it is anti-woman. The essence of drag performance is not impersonation of the opposite sex. It is the cultural presentation of an oppressed gender expression. Our oppression and our identities, as drag queens and kings, are not simply based on our clothing. The term drag only means cross-dressing to most people. By that definition, we are people who put on garb intended for the opposite sex as a kind of masquerade. It's true that the word drag is believed to have originated as a stage term, derived from the drag of the long train of dresses male actors wore. But, in fact, it is our gender expression, not our clothes, that shapes who we are. Hopefully, the trans liberation movement will create a deeper understanding of sex and gender oppression. Everyone has a stake in the struggle to uncover how much cultural baggage is attached to the social categories of man and woman. The next segment of Chapter 14 of Transgender Warriors responds to an argument that I hear far too often, that trans women can't be women because they had, or have, or could choose to have, male privilege. This is a conversation that trans women need to be at the helm of, given that they're the ones with direct experience around what privileges they have and have not enjoyed before or after coming out. The trans women I've heard speak on this topic have given a variety of responses, because trans women's experiences are no more a monolith than women's experiences in general, and because this is a complex topic that has no easy answer. I have heard some trans women talk about the ways they did benefit from being perceived as a man before coming out, and how quickly those benefits vanished once they did come out. I remember one tweet from a trans woman noting how she'd never been interrupted or had her suggestions ignored or even stolen while at work until she came out. For her, this felt like having had male privilege and then losing it. The complexity that many other trans women have added to that simple-seeming experience is that if a privilege can be so quickly and easily stripped away as soon as others realize you're not part of the privileged group after all, can it really be seen as a privilege? Or is it something used to cage you, pressure you to stay in the closet, stick to the status quo? I am reminded of all concepts of passing privilege, and how cruel it is to claim a person is privileged for being invisibilized, and forced to choose whether to live in isolation and fear of being discovered, or else to assert themselves and risk backlash for that. I and many of my loved ones have been in situations where others are speaking negatively about a marginalized group to which we belong right in front of us without realizing we belong to that group. While yes, there can be a flimsy sort of safety afforded to us when we can pass as being part of the privileged group, it comes at the cost of our sense of being seen and known, of belonging anywhere. It often means we're subjected to having to sit and listen to people talk about how much they hate us. It's not a privilege. It's a different flavor of oppression. 
Meanwhile, some trans women I've listened to talk about their lives pre-transition as empty of even that flimsy faux privilege. They had never been perceived as one of the guys and were punished for failing to fit into the gender they'd been assigned. Laverne Cox is one woman who has spoken on this experience. She tweeted the following back in 2017. I was talking to my twin brother today about whether he believes I had male privilege growing up. I was a very feminine child, though I was assigned male at birth. My gender was constantly policed. I was told I acted like a girl and was bullied and shamed for that. My femininity did not make me feel privileged. Gender exists on a spectrum, and the binary narrative, which suggests all trans women transition from male privilege, erases a lot of experiences and isn't intersectional. Gender is constituted differently based on the culture we live in. There's no universal experience of gender, of womanhood. To suggest that is essentialist and, again, not intersectional. Many of our feminist foremothers cautioned against such essentialism and not having an intersectional approach to feminism. Class, race, sexuality, ability, immigration status, education, all influence the ways in which we experience privilege. So though I was assigned male at birth, I would contend that I did not enjoy male privilege prior to my transition. Patriarchy and cissexism punished my femininity and gender nonconformity. The irony of my life is, prior to my transition, I was called a girl, and after, I am often called a man. Gender policing and the fact that gender binaries can only exist through strict policing complicates the concept of gendered privilege, and that's okay, because it's complicated. Intersectionality complicates both male and cis privilege. This is why it is paramount that we continue to lift up diverse trans stories. For too many years, there's been far too few trans stories in the media. For over 60 years since Christine Jorgensen stepped off the plane from Europe and became the first internationally known trans woman, the narrative about trans folks in the media was one of macho guy becomes a woman. That's certainly not my story or the stories of many trans folks I know. The narrative often works to reinforce binaries rather than explode them. That explosion is the gender revolution I imagine, one of true gender self-determination. I am thankful to Laverne Cox for sharing her experiences. As I noted before, it is important to have trans women at the forefront of these conversations. Still, voices raised in solidarity can also be helpful especially when they provide other trans perspectives. Here's Feinberg's take on the issue of male privilege, followed by her perspective on the issue of policing public bathrooms. The women's liberation movement that shaped my consciousness exposed the institutionalized oppression of women. The movement revealed that inequality begins at a very early age. But simply looking at the differences between what boys and girls are taught only reveals a broad analysis of sexual oppression. Just as girls experience different messages based on whether they are feminine, masculine, or androgynous, boys do too. It's absurd to think that messages of woman-hating and male privilege will produce the same consciousness in a male youth who grows up believing he will be part of the good old boys club. 
and one who grows up fearing humiliation and violence at the hands of men. If the consciousness of male-to-female transsexuals was shaped early on by male privilege, then why would they give it up? What is the consciousness of a child who is assigned one sex at birth, but grows up identifying strongly with another sex? We need to examine how many ways there are to be a man or a woman, and how gender oppression makes sex role conditioning more complex. Everyone who is living as a woman in this woman-hating society is dealing with oppression every day and deserves both the refuge of being with other women and the collective power of the women's movement. As a rape survivor, I understand the need for safe space together, free from sexist harassment and potential violence. But fear of gender variance also can't be allowed to deceptively cloak itself as a women's safety issue. I can't think of a better example than my own and my butch friends' first-hand experiences in public women's toilets. Of course women need to feel safe in a public restroom. That's a serious issue. So when a man walks in, women immediately examine the situation to see if the man looks flustered and embarrassed or if he seems threatening. They draw on the skills they learned as young girls in this society to read body language for safety or danger. Now, what happens when butches walk into the women's bathroom? Women nudge each other with elbows or roll their eyes and say mockingly, Do you know which bathroom you're in? That's not how women behave when they really believe there's a man in the bathroom. This scenario is not about women's safety. It's an example of gender phobia. And ask yourself, if you were in the women's bathroom and there were two teenage drag queens putting on lipstick in front of the mirror, would you be in danger? If you called security or the cops or forced those drag queens to use the men's room, would they be safe? Defending the inclusion of transsexual sisters in women's spaces does not threaten the safety of any woman. The AIDS movement, for example, battled against the right-wing characterization of gay men as a high-risk group. We want an understanding that there is no high-risk group, there are high-risk behaviors. Therefore, creating safety in women's space means we have to define unsafe behavior, like racist behavior by white women towards women of color, or dangerous insensitivity to disabilities. Transsexual women are not a Trojan horse trying to infiltrate women's space. There have always been transsexual women helping to build the women's movement. They are part of virtually every large gathering of women. They want to be welcomed into women's space for the same reason every woman does, to feel safe. No high-risk group, only high-risk behaviors. I find that idea so helpful in arguing for trans inclusion in various spaces. Who is more dangerous to people who want to use the women's bathroom? A trans woman trying to pee, or the cop another woman sends in there after her. Feinberg includes a comic by Alison Bechtel among these pages on bathroom safety. In the comic, which I'll include in the episode transcript if you want to see it, three women coming out of a movie stop to use the bathroom. One of them, a cis lesbian named Mo, expresses discomfort at the idea of sharing the bathroom with Jillian, a trans woman. The third character, Lois, responds with, Mo, 
I'm not going to stand around here all night just because you're having a transphobia attack. Get over it and go pee, or we'll leave without you. First of all, great response, Lois. Second of all, Mo does indeed get over it and go pee. But while in there, a stranger accosts her with, Excuse me, aren't you in the wrong bathroom? In her desire to police who can and can't use the women's bathroom, this stranger has ended up targeting someone she would claim belongs simply because of her assumptions about visible gender expression. Jillian, the very person Mo had been nervous about peeing next to, swoops into the rescue, standing up for Mo. Afterwards, Mo sheepishly thanks Jillian. She's realized that she has far more reason to join in solidarity with a trans woman than to repeat anti-trans rhetoric that ultimately harms everyone outside of gender norms. Of course, even if it were not the case that cis people are often caught in anti-trans crossfire, it would still be imperative to fight transphobia on behalf of the main targets, trans and non-binary folk. But I do think that pointing out these complexities and the scope of who is hurt can help people who are hesitant about supporting the trans community understand everything that's at stake. What Feinberg brings up in the last passage I'll share with you ups the stakes significantly. Z asks whom we would empower to check who is a real woman in any given space. This is a question being asked right now in the conversation about trans women and girls in women's and girls' sports, and the answer being given chills me to the bone. In early June 2022, the Ohio GOP passed a change to state laws that allows anyone to dispute the sex of an athlete on a school team. This will likely impact children as young as 10 years old or 5th grade. And the way to prove one's sex after it's been disputed involves an invasive and painful medical exam as well as a blood test. I can't even bring myself to describe it in detail because, honestly, it's triggering stuff. But I'll link a Twitter thread that explains in detail what that medical exam consists of. As the thread ends, congrats to everyone trying to save women's sports from your trans athlete boogeyman. This is heavy stuff but it is vital that we talk about it and make sure that all who are impacted by the policing of gender are given a platform to share their perspective. Feinberg ponders how to do that, and then Z ends this chapter of Transgender Warriors on a hopeful note. We can make a change. We can bring about a better future if we all band together in solidarity. Here's that closing passage now. If we were going to decide who is a real woman, who would we empower to decide? And how could the checkpoints be established? Would we all strip? How could you tell if a vagina was not newly constructed? Would we show our birth certificates? How could you determine that they hadn't been updated after sex reassignment? DNA tests? The Olympics tried it, but they had so many false results, they went back to relying on watching somebody pee in a cup for the drug test as the sex test. I understand that it took the tremendous social upheavals of the 60s and 70s to even begin to draw the borders of women's oppression. When I was growing up, no one even acknowledged that the system was stacked against women. 
But the women's liberation movement laid bare the built-in machinery of oppression in the society that's keeping us down. It's not your lipstick that's oppressing me, or your tie, or whether you change your sex, or how you express yourself. An economic system oppresses us in this society, and keeps us fighting each other instead of looking at the real source of this subjugation. The modern trans movement is not eroding the boundaries of women's oppression. Throughout history, whenever new lands and new oceans have been discovered, maps have always been recharted to show their relationship to each other. The modern trans liberation movement is redrawing the boundaries to show the depth and breadth of sex and gender oppression in this society. It is this common enemy that makes the women's and trans communities sister movements for social justice. What does it mean to be a woman in this society? How many different paths lead to woman? How varied are our experiences and what do we share in common? Isn't this the discussion we need to have in order to continue to build a dynamic women's movement? And yet we can't even begin the examination until all those who identify as women are in the movement. Let's open the door to everyone who is self-identified as a woman and who wants to be in women's space. Let's keep the door unlocked. Together, we can plot tactics and strategy for movement building, and we can set some good sense ground rules for what constitutes unsafe behavior. What should the sign on the door of the women's movement read? I think the key to victory are these three simple words, all women welcome. But in addition to fighting women's oppression, we need to recognize and defend other sites of sex and gender oppression and organize an even larger struggle. The women's and trans liberation movements are comprised of overlapping populations and goals. Perhaps the unity of our two huge movements for justice will birth a new movement that incorporates the struggles against all forms of sex and gender oppression. The combined power of women, trans people, and all our allies could give rise to a powerful sex and gender liberation movement.